Part two, chapter five of Lady Byron Vindicated A History of the Byron Controversy by Harriet Beecher Stowe. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter five The Direct Argument to Prove the Crime. Part one of two. We shall now proceed to state the argument against Lord Byron. First, there is direct evidence that Lord Byron was guilty of some unusual immorality. The evidence is not, as the Blackwood says, that Lushington yielded assent to the ex parte statement of a client, nor, as the quarterly intimates, that he was affected by the charms of an attractive young woman. The first evidence of it is the fact that Lushington and Romilly offered to take the case into court and make there a public exhibition of the proofs on which their convictions were founded second it is very strong evidence of this fact that lord byron while loudly declaring that he wished to know with what he was charged declined this open investigation and rather than meet it signed a paper which he had before refused to sign third it is also strong evidence of this fact that although secretly declaring to all his intimate friends that he still wished open investigation in a court of justice and affirming his belief that his character was being ruined for want of it he never afterwards took the means to get it instead of writing a private handbill he might have come to england and entered a suit and he did not do it that lord byron was conscious of a great crime is further made probable by the peculiar malice he seemed to bear to his wife's legal counsel if there had been nothing to fear in that legal investigation wherewith they threatened him why did he not only flee from it but regard with a peculiar bitterness those who advised and proposed it to an innocent man falsely accused the certainties of law are a blessing and a refuge female charms cannot mislead in a court of justice and the atrocities of rumour are there sifted and deprived of power a trial is not a threat to an innocent man it is an invitation an opportunity why then did he hate sir samuel romilly so that he exulted like a fiend over his tragical death the letter in which he pours forth this malignity was so brutal that moore was obliged by the general outcry of society to suppress it is this the language of an innocent man who has been offered a fair trial under his country's laws or of a guilty man to whom the very idea of public trial means public exposure fourth it is probable that the crime was the one now alleged because that was the most important crime charged against him by rumour at the period this appears by the following extract of a letter from shelley furnished by the quarterly dated bath september twenty ninth eighteen sixteen quote, i saw kennard and had a long talk with him he informed me that lady byron was now in perfect health that she was living with your sister i felt much pleasure from this intelligence i consider the latter part of it as affording a decisive contradiction to the only important calumny that ever was advanced against you on this ground at least it will become the world hereafter to be silent it appears evident here that the charge of improper intimacy with his sister was in the mind of shelley the only important one that had yet been made against lord byron 
it is fairly inferable from lord byron's own statements that his family friends believed this charge lady byron speaks in her statement of nearest relatives and family friends who were cognizant of lord byron's strange conduct at the time of the separation and lord byron in the letter to bowles before quoted says that every one of his relations except his sister fell from him in this crisis like leaves from a tree in autumn there was therefore not only this report but such appearances in support of it as convinced those nearest to the scene and best apprised of the facts so that they fell from him entirely notwithstanding the strong influence of family feeling the guiccioli book also mentions this same allegation as having arisen from peculiarities in lord byron's manner of treating his sister Quote, this deep fraternal affection assumed at times under the influence of his powerful genius and under exceptional circumstances an almost too passionate expression which opened a fresh field to his enemies it appears then that there was nothing in the character of lord byron and of his sister as they appeared before their generation that prevented such a report from arising on the contrary there was something in their relations that made it seem probable and it appears that his own family friends were so affected by it that they with one accord deserted him the quarterly presents the fact that lady byron went to visit mrs lee at this time as triumphant proof that she did not then believe it can the quarterly show just what lady byron's state of mind was or what her motives were in making that visit the quarterly seems to assume that no woman without gross hypocrisy can stand by a sister proven to have been guilty we can appeal on this subject to all women we fearlessly ask any wife supposing your husband and sister were involved together in an infamous crime and that you were the mother of a young daughter whose life would be tainted by a knowledge of that crime what would be your wish would you wish to proclaim it forthwith or would you wish quietly to separate from your husband and to cover the crime from the eye of man it has been proved that lady byron did not reveal this even to her nearest relatives it is proved that she sealed the mouths of her counsel and even of servants so effectually that they remain sealed even to this day this is evidence that she did not wish the thing known it is proved also that in spite of her secrecy with her parents and friends the rumor got out and was spoken of by shelley as the only important one now let us see how this note cited by the quarterly confirms one of lady byron's own statements she says to lady anne bernard quote, i trust you understand my wishes which never were to injure lord byron in any way for though he would not suffer me to remain his wife he cannot prevent me from continuing his friend and it was from considering myself as such that i silenced the accusations by which my own conduct might have been more fully justified how did lady byron silence accusations first by keeping silence to her nearest relatives second by shutting the mouths of servants third by imposing silence on her friends as lady anne bernard fourth by silencing her legal counsel fifth and most entirely by treating mrs lee before the world with unaltered kindness 
in the midst of the rumors lady byron went to visit her and shelley says that the movement was effectual can the quarterly prove that at this time mrs lee had not confessed all and thrown herself on lady byron's mercy it is not necessary to suppose great horror and indignation on the part of lady byron she may have regarded her sister as the victim of a most singularly powerful temper lord byron as she knew had tried to corrupt her own morals and faith he had obtained a power over some women even in the highest circles in england which had led them to forgo the usual decorums of their sex and had given rise to great scandals he was a being of wonderful personal attractions he had not only strong poetical but also strong logical power he was daring in speculation and vigorous in sophistical argument beautiful dazzling and possessed of magnetic power of fascination his sister had been kind and considerate to lady byron when lord byron was brutal and cruel she had been overcome by him as a weaker nature sometimes sinks under the force of a stronger one and lady byron may really have considered her to be more sinned against than sinning lord byron if we look at it rightly did not corrupt his sister mrs lee any more than he did the whole british public they rebelled at the immorality of his conduct and the obscenity of his writings and he resolved that they should accept both and he made them do it at first they execrated don juan murray was afraid to publish it women were determined not to read it in eighteen nineteen dr william mcginn of the noctes wrote a song against it in the following virtuous strain be one then unseen unknown it must or we shall rue it we may have virtue of our own ah uh, why should we undo it the treasured faith of days long past we still would prize o'er any and grieve to hear the ribald jeer of scamps like don giovanni lord byron determined to conquer the virtuous scruples of the noctes club and so we find this same dr william mcginn who in eighteen nineteen wrote so valiantly in eighteen twenty two declaring that he would rather have written a page of don juan than a ton of child harold all english morals were in like manner formally surrendered to lord byron moore details his adulteries in venice with unabashed particularity artists send for pictures of his principal mistresses the literary world call for biographical sketches of their points moore compares his wife and his last mistress in a neatly tuned sentence and yet the professor of morals in edinburgh university recommends the biography as pure and having no mud in it the mistress is lionized in london and in eighteen sixty nine is introduced to the world of letters by blackwood and bid without a blush to say she loved this much being done to all england it is quite possible that a woman like lady byron standing silently aside and surveying the course of things may have thought that mrs lee was no more seduced than all the rest of the world and have said as we feel disposed to say of that generation and of a good many in this let him that is without sin among you cast the first stone the peculiar bitterness of remorse expressed in his works by lord byron is a further evidence that he had committed an unusual crime 
we are aware that evidence cannot be drawn in this manner from an author's works merely if unsupported by any external probability for example the subject most frequently and powerfully treated by hawthorne is the influence of a secret unconfessed crime on the soul nevertheless as hawthorne is well known to have always lived a pure and regular life nobody has ever suspected him of any greater sin than a vigorous imagination but here is a man believed guilty of an uncommon immorality by the two best lawyers in england and threatened with an open exposure which he does not dare to meet the crime is named in society his own relations fall away from him on account of it it is only set at rest by the heroic conduct of his wife now this man is stated by many of his friends to have had all the appearance of a man secretly laboring under the consciousness of crime moore speaks of this propensity in the following language quote, i have known him more than once as we sat together after dinner and he was a little under the influence of wine to fall seriously into this dark self-accusing mood and throw out hints of his past life with an air of gloom and mystery designed evidently to awaken curiosity and interest moore says that it was his own custom to dispel these appearances by ridicule to which his friend was keenly alive and he goes on to say quote, it has sometimes occurred to me that the occult causes of his lady's separation from him round which herself and her legal advisers have thrown such formidable mystery may have been nothing more than some imposture of this kind some dimly hinted confession of undefined horror which though intended by the relator to mystify and surprise the hearer so little understood as to take in sober seriousness End quote all we have to say is that lord byron's conduct in this respect is exactly what might have been expected if he had a crime on his conscience the energy of remorse and despair expressed in manfred were so appalling and so vividly personal that the belief was universal on the continent that the experience was wrought out of some actual crime goethe expressed this idea and had heard a murder imputed to byron as the cause the allusion to the crime and consequences of incest is so plain in manfred that it is astonishing that any one can pretend as galt does that it had any other application the hero speaks of the love between himself and the imaginary being whose spirit haunts him as having been the deadliest sin and one that has perhaps caused her eternal destruction what is she now a sufferer for my sins a thing i dare not think upon he speaks of her blood as haunting him and as being my blood the pure warm stream that ran in the veins of my fathers and in ours when we were in our youth and had one heart and loved each other as we should not love this work was conceived in the commotion of mind immediately following his separation the scenery of it was sketched in a journal sent to his sister at the time in letter three seventy seven defending the originality of the conception and showing that it did not arise from reading faust byron says it was the steinbach and the jungfrau and something else more than faustus that made me write manfred 
in letter 288 speaking of the various accounts given by critics of the origin of the story he says the conjurer is out and knows nothing of the matter i had a better origin than he could devise or divine for the soul of him in letter 299 he says as to the germs of manfred they may be found in the journal i sent to mrs lee part of which you saw it may be said plausibly that lord byron if conscious of this crime would not have expressed it in his poetry but his nature was such that he could not help it whatever he wrote that had any real power was generally wrought out of self and when in a tumult of emotion he could not help giving glimpses of the cause it appears that he did know he had been accused of incest and that shelley thought that accusation the only really important one and yet sensitive as he was to blame and reprobation he ran upon this very subject most likely to reawaken scandal but lord byron's strategy was always of the bold kind it was the plan of the fugitive who instead of running away stations himself so near to danger that nobody would ever think of looking for him there he published passionate verses to his sister on this principle he imitated the security of an innocent man in everything but the unconscious energy of the agony which seized him when he gave vent to his nature in poetry the boldness of his strategy is evident through all his life he began by charging his wife with the very cruelty and deception which he was himself practising he had spread a net for her feet he accused her of spreading a net for his he had placed her in a position where she could not speak and then leisurely shot arrows at her and he represented her as having done the same to him when he attacked her in don juan and strove to take from her the very protection of womanly sacredness by putting her name in the mouth of every ribald he did a bold thing and he knew it the reader is here referred to the remarks of blackwood on don juan in part three of this book he meant to do a bold thing there was a general outcry against it and he fought it down and gained his point by sheer boldness and perseverance he turned the public from his wife and to himself in the face of their very groans and protests his manfred and his cain were parts of the same game but the involuntary cry of remorse and despair pierced even through his own artifices in a manner that produced a conviction of reality his evident fear and hatred of his wife were other symptoms of crime there was no apparent occasion for him to hate her he admitted that she had been bright amiable good agreeable that her marriage had been a very uncomfortable one and he said to madame de stal that he did not doubt she thought him deranged why then did he hate her for wanting to live peaceably by herself why did he so fear her that not one year of his life passed without his concocting and circulating some public or private accusation against her she by his own showing published none against him it is remarkable that in all his zeal to represent himself injured he nowhere quotes a single remark from lady byron nor a story coming either directly or indirectly from her or her family he is in a fever in venice not from what she has spoken but because she has sealed the lips of her counsel and because she and her family do not speak 
so that he professes himself utterly ignorant what form her allegations against him may take he had heard from shelley that his wife silenced the most important calumny by going to make mrs lee a visit and yet he is afraid of her so afraid that he tells more he expects she will attack him after death and charges him to defend his grave now if lord byron knew that his wife had a deadly secret that she could tell all this conduct is explicable it is in the ordinary course of human nature men always distrust those who hold facts by which they can be ruined they fear them they are antagonistic to them they cannot trust them the feeling of falkland to caleb williams as portrayed in godwin's masterly sketch is perfectly natural and it is exactly illustrative of what byron felt for his wife he hated her for having his secret and so far as a human being could do it he tried to destroy her character before the world that she might not have the power to testify against him if we admit this solution byron's conduct is at least that of a man who is acting as men ordinarily would act under such circumstances if we do not he is acting like a fiend let us look at admitted facts he married his wife without love in a gloomy melancholy morose state of mind the servants testified to strange unaccountable treatment of her immediately after marriage such that her confidential maid advises her to return to her parents in lady byron's letter to mrs lee she reminds lord byron that he always expressed a desire and determination to free himself from the marriage lord byron himself admits to madame de stal that his behaviour was such that his wife must have thought him insane now we are asked to believe that simply because under these circumstances lady byron wished to live separate from her husband he hated and feared her so that he could never let her alone afterwards that he charged her with malice slander deceit and deadly intentions against himself merely out of spite because she preferred not to live with him this last view of the case certainly makes lord byron more unaccountably wicked than the other the first supposition shows him to us as a man in an agony of self-preservation the second as a fiend delighting in gratuitous deceit and cruelty again a presumption of this crime appears in lord byron's admission in a letter to moore that he had an illegitimate child born before he left england and still living at the time in letter three o seven to mr moore under date venice february second eighteen eighteen byron says speaking of moore's loss of a child quote, i know how to feel with you because i am quite wrapped up in my own children besides my little legitimate i have made unto myself an illegitimate since Ida's birth to say nothing of one before and i look forward to one of these as the pillar of my old age supposing that i ever reach as i hope i never shall that desolating period the illegitimate child that he had made to himself since Ada's birth was Allegra, born about nine or ten months after the separation. The other illegitimate alluded to was born before, and as the reader sees, was spoken of as still living. Moore appears to be puzzled to know who this child can be, and conjectures it may possibly be the child referred to in an early poem written while a schoolboy of nineteen at Harrow 
on turning back to the note referred to we find two things first that the child there mentioned was not claimed by lord byron as his own but that he asked his mother to care for it as belonging to a schoolmate now dead second that the infant died shortly after and consequently could not be the child mentioned in this letter now besides this fact that lord byron admitted a living illegitimate child born after ada we place this other fact that there was a child in england which was believed to be his by those who had every opportunity of knowing on this subject we shall cite a passage from a letter recently received by us from england and written by a person who appears well informed on the subject of his letter Quote, the fact is the incest was first committed and the child of it born before shortly before the byron marriage the child a daughter must not be confounded with the natural daughter of lord byron born about a year after his separation the history more or less of that child of incest is known to many for in lady byron's attempts to watch over her and rescue her from ruin she was compelled to employ various agents at different times End quote. this letter contains a full recognition by an intelligent person in england of a child corresponding well with lord byron's declaration of an illegitimate born before he left england up to this point we have then the circumstantial evidence against lord byron as follows a good and amiable woman who had married him from love determined to separate from him two of the greatest lawyers in england confirmed her in this decision and threatened lord byron that unless he consented to this they would expose the evidence against him in a suit for divorce he fled from this exposure and never afterwards sought public investigation he was angry with and malicious towards the counsel who supported his wife he was angry at and afraid of a wife who did nothing to injure him and he made it a special object to defame and degrade her he gave such evidence of remorse and fear in his writings as to lead eminent literary men to believe he had committed a great crime the public rumor of his day specified what the crime was his relations by his own showing joined against him the report was silenced by his wife's efforts only lord byron subsequently declares the existence of an illegitimate child born before he left england corresponding to this there is the history known in england of a child believed to be his in whom his wife took an interest all these presumptions exist independently of any direct testimony from lady byron they are to be admitted as true whether she says a word one way or the other this ends chapter five the direct argument to prove the crime part one of two Read for you by Michelle Fye, Baton Rouge, Louisiana.